Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I have not a message to preach, but a burden to impart. And that's exactly what this is. You know, it can, if you will, seem... That when you attend church, that a pastor, whether he or she, stands up and delivers a sermon, it can feel at times that this is the performance of an hour. But preaching for me is not the performance of an hour, it's the outflow of a life. Meaning that what I'm going to share with you today is, is probably, for me, in terms of my Christian journey and faith, been what has burdened me the most about God's church, particularly within the context of the West, right? Us growing up, many of us growing up in the West, whether that be America or any other Western nation, Western culture. Um, some of the challenges that we face. And, you know, in week number two, we have started a series last week called Paul and the Road Ahead. And uh, if you want to follow along today, you can follow along on version. I think they have a slide to show that, uh, just as a way of reminding all of us. But when you talk about uh, version, the Bible app on your phone, uh, if you'll click the top left and click events, once you hit events, uh, our church will pop up there and it's just a way that you can follow along uh, with us as we look at several passages of scripture today. I do want to say, as Pastor Chad said, just as an echo, what a privilege it was to serve this past Monday. Thank all of you for your hard work, uh, for really one of the most, uh, I think, well attended in terms of volunteer base um, events that we've done for the city of Woodstock and I'm the one that looks at all the analytics. You couldn't imagine the amount of website visits we ha- had happen on Monday because there were thousands of bags of candies that went out that had dwellingplacemovement.org on them. And uh, I wouldn't doubt it that even in the second gathering today, we'll see folks from that outreach event. So thank you so much. Uh, such a privilege and honor to love and to continue to serve our city. I want to begin, if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to begin today. Paul wrote 13 out of 27 New Testament books. So he wrote little less than half of the New Testament. Okay, If you have him as the author of Hebrews, of which I am not sold that he wrote Hebrews, but I do know definitely based upon the theological uh, outset that our outline, I should say, that he did, if he did not, it was a clear disciple of the Apostle Paul. So you're talking about half of the New Testament of what we call the New Testament canon being written, penned from the hand of one man. His name is Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle. His magnum opus, meaning his greatest work, his, if you will, greatest dissertation, his greatest defense of his ministry is the book of Romans. I think it, it deserves to be said that the book of Romans has been the study of every great awakening in all of church history. I don't know if you know this or not. Every revival, every great awakening started with someone being moved upon by the Spirit of God through the book of Romans. Romans 16 chapters, again, the most clear, exhaustive response of the Apostle Paul in his defense of the gospel, but also to address some issues that are taking place in Rome. And I want to use Romans 1.1 in the outset here because it's a book about the gospel. It is, again, the clearest, most in-depth look at the gospel in all of Scripture. But here is where I think people miss the boat. The book is written in Romans chapter 1 verse 1. It is written um, as a gospel for Christians themselves. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 1, the Bible says, To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Meaning, Christians, I think, follow me church, miss the boat on this. Because Christians often think that the gospel is only for unbelievers. But Paul is going to show us that the gospel is not, that in the gospel are not only just the resources we need to begin the Christian life, but in the gospel are all the resources we need to thrive in the Christian life. I could say it like this, the gospel is not just the way you begin the Christian life, the gospel is the way you grow in the Christian life. Let me say it another way, the gospel is not the diving board by which you enter into the pool of Christianity, the gospel is the pool itself. You spend time in the gospel. And another way, if I can say it this way, the gospel is like a well. 
if this registers more, you don't get the best water from the well by widening the well. You get the best and purest water by going deeper in the well. The same is true for the gospel. You don't get more pure water by getting wider knowledge, but by going deeper in insight. It's like a miner that mines out the precious jewels from the bottom of the ocean. That's what Paul does in the book of Romans and all of his New Testament epistles as we learn about the gospel. Now specifically, Paul had a practical problem he's trying to address in Romans 1.1. It's the division of Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome. You see, the original church at Rome consisted of Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews. Which was already in Rome... That church had its own issues because Jews and Gentiles had all these cultural differences. Jews had, this, Jews had this special diet and these code of laws. They had different political viewpoints. They used words. They used the language differently. And so you had the Jews that were in charge because they were the first Christians. So they were in charge and then the Gentiles attended the church in Rome. But five years before Paul writes the letter to Rome, the emperor Claudius in Rome had ordered all of the Jews to leave Rome. So all Jews had to leave Rome. We find this, by the way, in Acts 18, verse 1 and 2. And then all the Gentile leaders stepped into leadership. So now all the Jewish leaders are gone. You have a church now in Rome being led by Gentile leaders for five years. And then five years later, right before Paul writes Romans, guess what Claudius does? He allows all the Jews to come back to Rome. So they rejoin the church. So the Jews who used to be in the charge of the church, who've now been in the charge of the church for five years, have abdicated their responsibility to the Gentile leaders in charge of the church for five years. And now the Gentiles are asking, what in the world is going on? And the Jews are asking, what in the world is going on? There is drama ensuing. You can imagine the context. Now, Paul is then going to show them that the gospel creates a new humanity. It's the gospel that enables them to overcome their differences, their political differences, their cultural differences, their stylistic differences. It's the gospel that connects people. So let me begin today's message by asking a question or defining something for us. Who was Paul? We're going to preach a series called Paul on the Road Ahead. We must ask, who is Paul? In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul begins his statement this way. He said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I I want to just focus on every word there just for a few moments. Paul was, you can leave that up, a former Pharisee. Pharisees were a sect in Judaism that were hyper-devoted to the law. In Philippians, Paul tells us that he was not just any Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul, you got to understand, was trained under a man, a Jewish teacher named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was one of the most sought-after teachers of his day. It would be something like a Rhodes Scholar of his religion of the day. You didn't choose a teacher like Gamaliel. Gamaliel chose a student like you. Gamaliel would be the Mr. Miyagi... Of Phariseeism. He was the highest ranking official in Phariseeism. For for sure, Paul would have memorized, if not all of the Hebrew scriptures. Paul was proficient in multiple languages. He He was zealous not just for knowing the law, but for keeping the law. I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, if anybody thinks they're good at keeping the law, humbly, I am better. I am good at being good. I'm the best at being the best. I am good at being perfect. He was so zealous, in fact, that he devoted himself to destroying Christians. Now, we see that as a bad thing. But Paul, at least initially, saw that as a very good thing. Enemies were the, or Christians were the enemies of God. And he said, I was so zealous that I was willing to kill for his glory. In other words, Paul said, I, would, I was willing to do whatever it takes for God. Which was part of his dilemma, by the way, church. Because he started to realize that his zeal for being good had led him to a really, really bad place. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this said in church before. Believe it or not, though, Bill Maher, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, some of the greatest atheists to ever live, and the Apostle Paul agree on one thing. That is this. Religion can turn you into a really, really bad person. Religion makes the meanest of people in the world. Why? Because religion, I didn't say Christianity, it's a religion. 
caters to us and the worst parts of us. What does religion cater to? Pride, self-centeredness, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, bigotry. Which is why religious people are the worst. And all God's people said, amen. Religion... What does it do? It's done to distinguish you from others, to set you apart. And that's inherently selfish and leads you to insecurity, to selfishness and cruelty, which is the worst sin. That is religion. In its worst sense, that's what religion is. So there's one exception to that, the gospel. See, because the gospel teaches the opposite of religion. The gospel teaches that God offers salvation not to those who earn it as a reward, but to those who are unworthy and receive it as a gift. And because of that, Paul says, go back to verse 1. He said, I am a servant. Everybody say servant. In Greek, that word is doulos. This is called slave, lowest of the low. This is the opposite of what he had been going for as a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, his zeal and religion had aimed him to elevate himself above other people. Now he sees his relationship to Jesus as the reason to lower himself and to serve them. As a Pharisee, when Paul encountered people who were sinful and had problems, he would say, well, you're just getting what you deserve. If you were awesome like me, you wouldn't have those problems. Now he would say, yeah, I had lots of problems too. And thank God it didn't stop. Jesus from coming after me. As a Pharisee, Paul, when people would treat him wrong or people would treat him badly, he would respond with vigilance. He would say, if I'm righteous and, and if you treat me badly, I'll pay you back. Now Paul would say, I treated Jesus pretty badly too. Thank God he kept loving me. As a Pharisee, when Paul saw someone in need, he'd say, what I have is mine. I earned it and I don't owe it to anyone. Maybe throw them a carrot or something. Now he would say, thank God. Jesus didn't keep what was his for himself. He gave it to me or else I'd be lost. you got to understand, church, that the gospel of grace produces in us a fundamentally different spirit than zealousness in religion does. Religion makes you proud. Religion makes you self-centered. The gospel makes you humble. The gospel makes you generous. I was recently watching a, a show on the Today Show or a story on the Today Show. And there's a pastor in South Carolina. His name is Clayton King. pastors a church called New Spring Church. There was a guy on his pastoral team whose pregnant wife and young child. So she was with child and then she had a young child. They were driving a car one morning. And an EMT worker who had worked 24-hour shifts illegally and had not done what he had been asked to do. He fell asleep at the wheel and he hit them head on and he killed the wife and her unborn child and the little girl. The pastor was the husband. The guy driving was being irresponsible. He was facing major felony charges because he was irresponsible and had worked too many shifts and had fallen asleep and he shouldn't have been driving. Well, this pastor who's at New Spring Church showed up at this guy's sentencing, this EMT worker's sentencing, who was, again, facing felony charges and harsh time, and he pulled and pleaded with the judge for a more lenient sentence. Lo and behold, he gave him a lenient sentence, and that began an eight-year friendship where this pastor and that EMT worker have met together for the last eight years, every couple of weeks, and this guy, this EMT worker, has basically become like the son, if you will, of this pastor. And they asked this pastor why, when he took what was most valuable to you. He said, oh, he didn't take what was most valuable to me. He didn't take the gospel. He didn't take Jesus. And he said, why would you forgive this guy? And he said, well, this is what Jesus did for me. After I wronged him, he brought me close. It just makes sense that I would bring this guy close. Religion does not produce that in people. The gospel does. Only the gospel. Only the reality of the gospel. The gospel humbles you. You can even see it in Paul's name. Did you know before he met Jesus, his name was Saul? Who was Saul? The greatest king, right? The high-arching, amazing king, big stature king in Israel's history who was head and shoulders above everyone. But now once he met Jesus, you know what he went by? Paul, which in Latin means little, which is now how he saw himself. In one encounter with Jesus, Saul the Great became Paul the Little. The one who stood head and shoulders above all else became the one that was subservient to everybody else. 
He was loved by God and a recipient of a greater extravagant grace than he ever could imagine. The gospel of grace transformed Saul the mighty into Paul the small. Has that transformation happened to you yet? To take you from the mighty to the small. We have lots of people in the south who are really good at being good and going along with all the things that be good in religion. Notice what the text says next, that he was set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, Paul, formerly named Saul, had tried to distinguish himself through his talents and his goodness. Now he wants to only be known for the gospel. He said, I've seen what I can do and it wasn't good. So it's better to put Jesus on display than Paul on display. Question, question. What do you want to be known for? How are you trying to set yourself apart from others? Here's what I know. You being impressed with my talents or my abilities as a pastor is not going to help you at all. Let me give you two reasons why. First of all, because the reality is what you see on stage is not all there is to me. right? I'm a, I'm a lot less impressive the more you get to know me. The closer you get to know me. Second, if I were a perfect example, my example wouldn't help you. It would just crush you and discourage you. You'd think, well, I can never be perfect like a pastor is. And, or I can never be perfect like I assume he is. So it's so much better to use my platform to make JC, Jesus Christ, famous than Craig famous. Jim Elliott said this. He said, we Christians he said, are just a bunch of nobodies pointing to a greater somebody. That's who we are. And again... What do you want people to know about you? Are you trying to be Saul the Amazing or Paul the Small? For Paul, you've got to understand, church, the church is the continuation of Christ's presence in the world. He said that the church should have this natural dependence like the parts of a human body. Now, here's where I want to focus all of my time today. In all three accounts of the Damascus, Damascus Road experience, which was the salvation moment for Paul, and he recounts it three times. We see it in Acts 9 and then twice in, in the book of Acts. Jesus is clearly identified with the community because he asked Paul the question, Why are you persecuting me? Now, who was Paul the Apostle persecuting? Christians. He was zealous for killing Christians. And Jesus from heaven identifies himself with the Christians. And says, why, or ask, why are you persecuting me? Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there are 56 one another's inside of Scripture. Love one another. Care for one another. Honor one another. Cherish one another. Pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Hear me again. 56 one another's. Today's title is Paul's one another faith. Paul's one another gospel. And each of those 56 one another's expresses a different aspect of Jesus' command to love one another. So let's look at two texts together. 1 John chapter 4 is the first one. I'm going to read from the NRSV. 1 John chapter 4 verse 16, 17, and 18. Notice what the Apostle John says. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. For God is love and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this. That we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Notice that. Has not reached perfection in love. One other text, John chapter 15, and I want you to see how these interact with one another. This is Jesus' statement in what we call the statement on the vine, or the Father being the, the gardener. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Jesus said, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean, Jesus said, because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me or remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus said, I am the vine. Again, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, watch this, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. They're cast out. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus said, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, proving or showing yourselves to me, my 
disciples. Now, when you read 1 John, and then you read John 15, at the heart of the epistle, 1 John, is the reading or the promise that perfect love casts out fear. Everybody say, perfect love casts out fear. That's a promise most of us have heard all of our lives. If God's love is perfected in us, we have no fear of condemnation. We have no fear of judgment, Zach. Yet, in John 15, it's filled with threat. It's filled with judgment. It's filled with threats of judgment. Jesus says, those branches in me that don't bear fruit are cut off. They're wither away. They're cast off into the fire. So how can it be that Jesus, think about this just for a moment, claims God is the one who cuts off and prunes and destroys and also that perfect love casts out fear. Do you see the problem we have? You've got to follow with me today. Now listen, I know it's going to be quiet for a little while. I understand that. But all of the noise is always in the shallow end. But you're not going to drown, okay? All kinds of noise in shallow end of the pool. And you get to the deep end, there's no more kids. It gets quiet. Stick with me. You're not going to drown. We're going to stay together, right? So you get this threat of condemnation and judgment from John 15. Yet then you get this passage in 1 John that we have no reason to fear. So how can it be, is my question. How can we have no fear... If our God threatens us with judgment. Or another way I can say this is how can we hear God's threats as promises? When God says I will prune you or I will cut you away. How do I hear that as I will make you holy and good? How do I hear that as I will make you wise? I think that's the only way we can look at these texts and recognize truly the nature of Paul's one another faith. So on the one hand, we serve a God that cuts back and cuts away. And yet even that is something we don't have to fear. Not only for ourselves, but for other people. Now I want to give you my thesis. I think everything, church, depends on how we live together. How do we live together? Because the point of these two texts is less about my relationship to God and more about my relationship to you. More about my relationship to other believers. And I think most of us have heard it exactly the other way around. We have heard and thought of the church and we've heard of the Christian gathering in service of our personal relationship to God. The Christianity we inherited is that what's primal, what's basic, what's most important is my personal relationship with God. And the church is to serve that. We've been trained to think that what matters most is my individual personal relationship to God in Christ. And my relationship to you helps my relationship to God in Christ. But insofar as it hinders my relationship to God in Christ, I can break the relationship with you because I have a relationship to God in Christ and that's what defines me. And I think the heart of this passage and I think the heart of Paul's logic is that the truth is exactly the other way around. Now it's very hard for us Westerners to hear that. It's very hard for us as a nation who prides ourselves on individuality and individual expression and independence to hear the scriptures in such a way. That there is no revelation or relationship to God in Christ that doesn't look like a relationship with you. To be bound in Him is to be inseparably bound up with you. To be a believer is to be baptized into the body of Christ. It's to, by necessity, have a relationship that's functional and working with other brothers and sisters. So to be entangled in your life so that if I am cut off, I am cut off not only from Him, but I'm cut off also from you. So that, John 15 language, if I abide in the vine, I am entangled in the branches. You are the branch. I am the branch. That when we are in Christ, we are entangled in one another. And there is no cutting away from Him that is also not a breaking away from you. And there is no breaking away from you that is also not a cutting away from Him. And let me say another way. If I abide in the vine, I remain entangled with the branches. I remain caught up in your life, and you remain caught up in my life. So that to be a Christian is not primarily to make a claim about a relationship with God, but it's primarily to make a claim about a relationship with the people of God. So that when you and I, as believers and Christians, say when you and I are in Christ, you are saying that you are tied up with the people who call Christ Lord. And that is the shape your relationship with the Lord must take. It must take the shape of being a one another, being connected to other people. Again, I think we get this exactly backwards over and over again. 
But think about for a moment Paul's 1 Corinthians 13 passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I want to show you, this might, this might be teachy and not preachy for a moment, but go with me, it's what I got today. 1 Corinthians 13, I want you to hear it perhaps differently than maybe you've heard it before. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is writing, and this is what he says at the height of giving instruction about spiritual giftedness in the church. He said, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body that I may boast, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, I'll leave that up for a moment. I want you to notice all of the different things that are being listed here are a description of a life that is filled with the power of God. This is a description of a person that in the Western world we would deem as mature. Filled up with the life of God. Filled up with the power of God. It is the saints and the prophets who have prophetic powers, who understand all mysteries, who are filled with faith, who move mountains and give their bodies a sacrifice. And Paul says that means nothing if you don't live with one another lovingly. And then he describes the nature of that love. He describes the nature of Christian brotherly, sisterly love. I want you, as we read it, to see how mundane, how pedestrian, how common, how basic the description of love he gives us is in contrast to prophetic powers, faith that moves mountains, understanding all mysteries. Look what he says, verse 4, love is patient. Love is patient. Love suffers long. Notice that. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. All of these things he describes is not about my relationship to God. I don't need to be patient with God. This is not what this kind of love is. I don't need to be patient with God. God is patient with me. I don't need to be kind with God. I have to be patient with you. You have to be patient with me. You have to be kind to me. I have to be kind to you. All that Paul lists here is about our mutual relationship in Christ. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Now I know, listen church, you hear this read at at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. And it can be used as a guiding map for marriage. But this is what we call koinonia of fellowship, the one another kind of faith that we've inherited. This is love between brothers and sisters, not love between God and humans. This is how we are to function in community. I know this is counterintuitive for us, but the most important part of your life with God is your life with other believers and those who do not yet believe. What defines your faithfulness is not your prophetic powers. I did not inherit a faith that told me this. What defines your faithfulness to the kingdom of God is not understanding all mysteries. It's not having faith that moves mountains. It's not even walking in faith and victory. It's not going from glory to glory. It's living day to day, face to face, shoulder to shoulder with people who are just like you and just like me and not resenting them for being just like you. That's what a mark of a true Christian is. That's the mark of faithfulness. What defines the Christian life as faithful is our ability to stomach each other long enough for God's work to be performed in us. It's staying close enough to each other that the vine's life can flow through us as we are entangled branches. The fruit we are called to bear is the fruit of life together. The fruit we are called to bear is not prophetic power or mysterious insight or faith that moves mountains, but brotherly and sisterly love that goes across time and generations and crosses whatever difficulties we face together. That's maturity. I want to show you some research that has just been released about friendship in America. And this is no doubt 
true, you're going to probably resonate with it. There's a simple graphic that I want to show you that shows you about friendship decline. So in the 1990, you'll see on the top left, men and then women at the bottom, three people said they had no close friends. 40 people had 10 or more friends. In 2021, 15 men out of every 100 have zero friends and have 15 with 10 or more. Women, it's not hurting quite as bad, but in 1996, of them had no close friends, right? And look at 2021, it's going up to 10 of those. Now, my question is, when you look at that stat, those stats, do you think we have a problem? Americans have fewer friends than they used to. 15% of men and 10% of women have no close friends in our culture. Now, I want you to imagine why. Consider in America how transient we are. We change careers on a dime. We change houses on a dime. We change locations on a dime. We never look at the long game. We look for what fits us best, works for us best. We change things multiple times in our lifetime because we are our own. We've been told by American culture we don't belong to anyone. No one ties us down. We're individuals. We have individual expression. That's the height of the Western idealism. I can be my own individual. And then this society gives us coping techniques for loneliness that deal with the loneliness. But mostly what they do is they make us addicted. And they make us constantly aware of our own inadequacies. And then we become better targets for marketers. Can I give you the real soul-sucking part? We haven't got to the soul-sucking part. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you real quick. It turns out that when you are lonely, you're not productive. So employers are now trying to engineer socializing through friendship or team building. And now Americans see friendships as another role of work. So now it pushes friends further. We've got an issue. Individual expression must not be the height of what it means to be a human. People ask me all the time, is this, what, what, about, what about suicide rate and the record of over, overdoses? Well, it's a complex issue, but I would say that this is one of the reasons for the increase in overdoses. This is one of the main reasons for the increase in suicidal rate. So think about this. To be a faithful Christian, according to the one and others, is mostly about living in company with other Christians who are more or less faithful than you are. Now, that should be encouraging. But maybe not. Let me take us back to John now. And I want to show us how all this holds together. He begins in verse 7 of John 15 by telling us to love one another. Let us love one another because love is from God. So Christians are defined by the love God has for us. Therefore, watch this, let us love one another in that way. Look at verse 7 again. I want you to see this. Because love is from God. For who, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. I want you to think about that. He says, God's love was revealed among us in this. God sent His only Son to the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifices for our sins. Watch this. Focus with me. Verse 11. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Now, I want you to see, church, in most of our preaching, the argument right here would be, since God loves us so much, we should love Him back. That's not the emphasis. I've heard Christianity preached as, since God loved us so much, he loved us endlessly, you should love him endlessly. Since God loved us so much, you should reciprocate that love back to him. But that's not the emphasis. He said, since God loved us so much, we should learn to tolerate one another. The emphasis is, since God loved us so much, we should love horizontally to other people. God has loved you so much that you should stomach one another. God has loved you so much... That you should refuse to break company with one another. If you know how much God loves you, you can never walk away from those who are around you. Come on, church. If you really understand how much God loves you, you won't just quickly dismiss the people that are around you. And then he says something that's just fascinating. He says in the next verse, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Now notice how striking that line is. No one has seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And no one has ever seen God unless we live with one another in such a way that God is revealed. 
No one can see God, but God will be seen by how his people love one another. God will be made manifest by the way that the church interacts with one another. This is what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer just before his death. He said, this is how all people will know you are mine. He said in John chapter uh, 13, he said, by the way you love one another. By the way you love one another. The world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. How do we make God known in the world, church? Not by our personal individual devotion to him. Not by our prophetic powers. Not by our ability to understand all mysteries. We make God known in the world by the way we love one another. God is manifested in our ability to stay together for the long haul through whatever difficulties arise. God is manifested in our ability over time through whatever difficulties to love one another. And when we do that, the text says God's love is perfected in us. And it is that love, church, that casts out fear. I think, again, this is exactly opposite of what we've been taught and how we have been taught. We thought if we can pursue a relationship with God then we will eventually be able to find a way to live with each other. But the point of 1 John 4 is that the only way you can have the kind of confidence with God that drives out fear is if you live with one another long enough for God's love to be perfected in you. So I do people a disservice and a harm to try to counsel them through the fear they feel with their relationship with God and not point them to a relationship with brothers and sisters. Because it's the relationship with brothers and sisters over the long haul through whatever challenge and circumstance that God's love is perfected in us so that it drives out fear that we have towards God. It's the opposite. I think we've got it flipped upside down and inside out. It's only as we live together over time and through difficulty long enough that God's love can be strong enough in us to drive out fear. I learn not to be afraid By loving you and letting you love me. Because the more I realize that your life and my life are bound together. The more I realize God would not cut himself off from me because I'm bound to you. This is the key. This is the key church. The moment I realize that your salvation matters more than mine. I can never fear God again. The moment I realize my life is. I have no reason to fear God. Because what happens, what matters is not what happens to me. What matters is what happens to you. And any spirituality that creates an anxiety in me about my relationship to God is a spirituality that does not understand the need for brotherly and sisterly love. And people are so anxious about their personal individual relationship with God because they're not being perfected in brotherly and sisterly love. Because at the end of the day, I am called to you first and foremost. I know it sounds counterculture, but God has called me into his family because he's radically in love with you. And he has made me his care to you. Now that may be disappointing, but that's what you got. And that's what I have. And you are his care to me. Listen to me, church. Hear me. If you find yourself afraid of God, it's because you haven't lived deeply enough in your life with brothers and sisters. If you're afraid and find yourself afraid that God might cut you off, it's because you find yourself still thinking primarily about your relationship with God and not his or her relationship with God. And if you can realize that your prayers are first for them, That your fasting is first for them. Your study is first for them. Your sanctification is first for them. Your giving is first for them, not you. Your giving and generosity is first for others, not yourself. Then you realize you have no need to fear God because what's happening in you is the life of God is beginning to take shape. Because who is Christ if not the one who gave up his own life for the sake of others? That's who Christ is. When your salvation is no longer about you but your brothers, the life of God has taken shape in you. When your giving is no longer about you, but it's about others, the life of Christ is taking shape in you. When your prayer is no longer about you, but it's about others, the life of Christ is taking shape in you, and you have no more reason to fear God.
To be cut off from God would be to be cut off from your brother. And because we live such individually expressed lives, we never experience his perfect love. The most faithful believer then for Paul, for John, is the believer who's never thinking about his or her own salvation. Never trying to manage his or her own relationship with God. It's about loving those around me. It's about giving of myself to the people around me. So, so here's the question. How do we do that? Well, there are two stories I want to draw attention to today. Both of them are from Acts. And I want to glean from these passages. The first one is Acts chapter 8. Again, Paul, 56 times, love one another, care for one another, share one another. This is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Start with me in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. And Luke tells us this is a wilderness road. Everybody say wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace. Notice this. The queen of the Ethiopians in charge of the entire treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over to his chariot and join it. Next slide. So Philip ran up to it. And heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before her shears is silent. So Christ did not open his mouth. In this humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with his, this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. Now, first of all, this story, I think, models for us what it looks like to live in community over time and through difficulty. Over the long haul. Because sometimes we are called to be like Philip, and sometimes we're called to be like the Ethiopian eunuch. Let me explain. I want you to notice first what Philip does. He hears from God that he has a commission, but God doesn't tell him what it is. Can I just define for us or say to us, one of the most annoying things about our God is that he always gives you less information than you need. This is God. He gives a commission, but he doesn't tell what the commission is. He constrains the heart by the Spirit, but he doesn't tell us what happened. He never reveals his will fully. Let me say it this way. He always gives it to you bit by bit. He always gives it to you step by step. He says, Philip, get up and go to the road that leads to the wilderness. And Philip goes. And I think this is a model for how God deals with most of us. He doesn't say, I have this destiny for you. Here's how you fulfill it. He simply says, do this and do this. And often that this leads us right into the wilderness. He tells us to go. And when we get up and go, we find ourselves in the wilderness. Going down a wilderness road. And Philip in the wilderness encounters this eunuch who is reading Isaiah. And Philip then hears the word of the Lord go up to the chariot. Notice, it's step by step. Philip's living instinct to instinct. He's living Holy Spirit driven moment by Holy Spirit driven moment. He goes up to the man. And Philip complies. He's living moment to moment. Then he asks the question. He says, eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? What is striking to me, church, is the juxtaposition between what this man is reading and what Philip is doing. Did you catch it? He's reading Isaiah where Jesus is like a, what? Sheep led to the shear. But watch this. He, like a sheep before her shears is silent, did not open his mouth. And then the first thing Luke tells us is that Philip opened his mouth and said this text is about Jesus. Because here is the thing about our God. He remains silent so we can speak for him. Now I wish he didn't do this. I wish he didn't because I'd rather hear God speak than hear you speak. And you'd rather hear God speak than hear me speak. But let me tell you, at the heart of God's work in our life is to force us to need each other. It's to force us back to one another. So when we want him to speak, he will not open his mouth so that Philip has to open his mouth. The Holy Spirit does not lead the eunuch in understanding the scripture. God does not open his mouth so that Philip must open his mouth. 
He must determine and describe and give communication and give credence to what the scripture actually means. Because what God wants is not just a relationship with Philip. And what God wants is not just a relationship with the eunuch. What God wants is for Philip and the eunuch to be brothers together. So God opens not his mouth so someone else can speak up. And this is the hard part of our community, church. To live with a God who is silent... Because he's making room for people to speak to us. So many people I have read through or talked to through the years that they want God and they're praying for God to speak. And God is not going to speak except through the mouth of those around us that he means to send us for our good. And the question is, we've been listening for a voice from heaven when God has sent voices all around us on earth that we won't listen to. But when Philip opens his mouth, all he talks about is Jesus. He explains to him the text is about Jesus. Philip doesn't talk about Philip. Philip talks about Jesus. And here is the heart of a life turned over to God. You have to learn to talk to one another in such a way that when you talk to each other, we talk about Jesus. That's community. That's biblical covenant community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his wonderful little book called Life Together, he says this, At the heart of our ministry is the ministry of holding our tongue when it's time to be silent and speaking the gospel when it's time to be heard. This is the heart of community, church. Knowing when to keep your mouth shut and your fingers still, your thumbs off your screen. And when to speak and when to type with your thumbs. Knowing this, listen, knowing this, getting this out of rhythm can be incredibly destructive to Christian community. Speaking when you should be silent, no matter what you're saying. If you speak when you should be silent, even the truth can be destructive for people. This is the ministry of Satan. The ministry of Satan is to speak the truth when it shouldn't be spoken. And what happens is... If I speak the truth to you when it should not be spoken, I'm just destroying you. I'm like Peter cutting off the the, the Roman centurion's ear. And I'm making it where you can't hear the truth. But if I don't speak when it's time to speak, then I leave you in condemnation. And I leave you in confusion. And I leave you in brokenness. So being a person led by the Holy Spirit is knowing when to be silent and when to speak. And what's striking to me about Philip is that he gets it right in this passage. He hears the Spirit, he goes next to the chariot, and then he speaks when he is supposed to speak. And he says the right thing at the right time. But I'm even more impressed with the eunuch. Did you know the eunuch is the hero of Acts 8? Can I explain this just for a moment? He's the hero of the story because, first of all, he's an Ethiopian eunuch. So he's a Gentile eunuch. You know where he's been? He's been to Jerusalem to worship. Now, can I just say something? This is astonishing because Israel's law forbids strictly either Gentiles or eunuchs coming into the house of God. And here is a man who is a Gentile and a eunuch, and he shows up anyways. Here is a man who by double standards should not, he's an outcast doubly, should not be worshiping God, and yet he comes to worship God. I want you to think about what this takes for a moment. Think about the guts it takes to be a Gentile and to be a eunuch and show up in Jerusalem. There is someone who is a double outsider and yet he shows up. And when he shows up, God doesn't show up for him. Here's another thing about our God. He never meets you where you think he will meet you. He never meets you where you think he will meet you. This man comes from Ethiopia to Jerusalem looking for something to happen, but it didn't happen there. It didn't happen in Jerusalem. Philip didn't meet him in Jerusalem. Jesus did not meet the Ethiopian eunuch in Jerusalem. Now he's on his way home, but he's still reading Isaiah, a passage he does not understand. And can I just say to us as a church, this is roughly what about 97% of the Christian life is. It's going to find God and not finding Him, and going home and reading texts that you don't understand, and then finally one day encountering the people God sends you. If I've heard this testimony once in growth phases, I've heard it 300 times. I've been in church, I've been searching, searching for God, searching for God, God's not to 
be found. I've been listening to God. I've been trying to read passages. I don't understand the passages. I just keep being stubborn enough to show up time and time again. And then God sends me the right people to encounter me. This is roughly what the Christian life is like. Showing up at places where God doesn't speak and reading passages you don't understand, but being stubborn enough to keep doing it anyways. To keep doing it anyways. Again and again and again. And let me tell you something. It's going to find God and not finding Him. It's going home and reading texts you don't understand. And then finally, you encounter the people God sends you. And the only thing that will keep you in this life is being stubborn enough to keep reading texts you don't understand and showing up at places where you don't think God speaks. That's what will keep you in this life. Showing up when God doesn't speak, when you think he will speak, and reading texts you don't understand. And this eunuch, what I love about him is he's just stubborn enough to keep doing it and he's humble enough to accept the teaching of God when it comes. Because as hard as it is to know when to be silent and when to speak, it is even harder to know when to listen. And this eunuch knows this is my time to listen. He says, how can I know? He asked the question, how can I? He said, hey, do you know who you're talking about? Do you know who you're reading about? He said, how can I know unless someone uh, you know, teaches me that understands? And so he opens his ear to listen. And this is the secret to abiding in long-term community. Can you listen to people or not? Can anybody teach you anything? Can you hear someone else say, this is what the Lord wants, and accept it? Are you stubborn enough to keep showing up time after time after time, even when God doesn't speak, and read texts you don't understand? Oh, church, I love the story of Thomas. This reminds me of the story of Thomas. Remember what happened, Thomas? He wasn't there when the resurrected Savior appears. You want to talk about disappointment? But he's stubborn enough a week later to be back in the room. And what happens? Jesus shows up. Listen, because for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, the Christian life is hearing about other people talk about how amazing God is in their life. But he's not like that for me. And he's not showing up that way in my life. This is, this is the Christian life. Showing up in church on Sunday morning in spite of the fact that he doesn't speak to you 24-7 like he seems to speak to the person in your connect group. I mean, some people... God tells them what clothes to wear. He tells them what breakfast foods to eat. He tells them he speaks in every dream. He's got something new to tell them every connect group meeting. He tells them who to text, who they shouldn't text. He speaks to them in every vision. And others are like, I'm not even sure if God has ever spoken to me or not. I don't even know if he's ever even really talked to me. But I show up, not because I'm waiting on that to happen. Because if I needed that to happen, God would give me that. He would be faithful to give me that. I'm showing up because it's about what God is doing between us and what God is doing among us and what matters is the way we love one another what matters is not our prophetic powers and mysterious insight and the ability to have faith that moves mountains it's about showing up and putting my body in a place of faithfulness for other people no matter how annihilating bad my week has been people know it and I'm here again and I'm here again and I'm here again and I'm here again this is the secret of long term community This is it. It's putting your body in a place of faithfulness over and over and over and over again. Not for your sake, but for the sake of your brothers and sisters. And this will determine whether this church is here 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And is a group of individuals seeking out their own relationship with God. Or it's a community knit together by supernatural love. This is what determines it. What God cares about is that you are there when I need you. Not that you understood the book of Revelation and how it relates to the book of Daniel. No matter how impressive your end time chart is, that's not priority. What matters is that when I need someone to sit with me at the hospital, you show up and you put your body there. We have a disembodied Christian gospel in the West that is so impersonal. And the heart and the desire of a one another faith is that we put our bodies in the presence of one another. That when I lose someone, when my wife loses someone, you're there bringing food to my house so that I don't have to cook when I'm grieving. 
that's what matters. That you show up on Sunday morning so other people can see you here even though your week has been atrocious. That's what the Christian life is about. It's about putting your body in a place of faithfulness over and over again for the sake of other people. To be stubborn enough to show up even though you are disappointed. Even though God hasn't met you in the way you want to meet God. It's being Thomas. It's being the eunuch. Some of you in here, you feel like an outsider. What's so amazing to me about this passage in Acts is that Philip hadn't got far enough He was reading in the passage in Isaiah 50. If he would have gotten to chapter 60, he would have realized God's promise to the eunuch. Where God says in Isaiah 65, the eunuch cannot say I'm a dead, dried up tree. For he said, God said in the gospel, I will make the eunuchs even greater than my sons and daughters. And some of you in here, you feel like a eunuch. You feel like the outsider. I tell you, rejoice. Rejoice. You say, Craig, why rejoice? Because this is not about prophetic powers and about insight into mystery. This is about people who show up even when they feel dead. Even when they pray, they hear nothing. And when they give, they get no blessings in return. And yet they show up. This is the people God esteems. Because it's easy, y'all, to be a person of prayer when what's coming from prayer is power and revelation. Because then you can use that power and revelation against other people to promote yourself in the community. You see this? So now that I have power and revelation, I can elevate myself in the community. It's easy to be a person of prayer when you see miracles happen in your life and your family. Because that empowers you and it gives you status and standing within the community. This is why Simon the sorcerer wants to buy Peter's gift. Because he knows if I get that gift, I can use it in status. I can be high up in the community. But, but, but do you know really what it takes to be a person of prayer when your prayers never seem to be answered? You know what it takes to be a person of faith and fasting and faithfulness and study when your study never yields blessing? Those are the people Isaiah says God is pleased with. Those people that just keep showing up even though miracles seem to never happen for them. God doesn't speak to them. Their faith does not only not move mountains, but mountains fall on them whenever they have faith. And yet they keep showing up. There are the people... These are the people that make community. Listen to me, church. Look at me. Because the people who are in a church for what it means for them never stay in community. They're always moving from church to church, community to community. Because if you don't see them for what they are, they're offended. If you don't celebrate them for the gifts they have, they will move into another community that will celebrate their gifts. But if this is not about me being celebrated, but about me serving you, then whether or not God speaks to me or not, whether or not Scripture opens to me or not, whether or not I got a powerful prayer life or not, whether or not people understand me or not, whether or not miracles happen or not, I'm going to show up for you. That's what makes community. And the difference... 30, 40, 50 years from now of this community being a bunch of individuals pursuing an individual relationship with God or being a community that lasts across generations to Knox's grandkids is going to be how many of those people do we have? Those people. Not how many prophets. Not how many teachers. Not how many miracle workers. How many stubborn people who keep showing up. Final story and I'm done. Jesse, if you want to come. This would be a bit difficult, but, but you got to hear me. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I kept thinking about this story this week. It, it was just challenging me because I was thinking about the, the threat of John 15 of cutting us off. And then the promise of 1 John of having no fear of judgment. Perfect love casting out fear. You know the story. I, I won't tell you the whole story, but a man and a woman who see... Everyone else in the, the community selling their possessions and coming and, br- and, and bringing their profits to the apostles' feet. And so Ananias and Sapphira are eating Frosted Flakes one morning and they devise a scheme. They're going to sell their property and then they're going to lie about the amount they received. And then they're going to go and give it to Peter and then they're going to say they gave everything. And Ananias comes first. And he gives the gift to the apostles, which is not the full because he keeps from for himself. And he gives it to Peter, and he dies. He falls dead at the feet of Peter. And 
scripture says you're going to die because you have lied not to me but you've lied to the Holy Spirit and he dies a couple hours later Sapphira comes to the door and she takes the scheme of selling their property and keeping some for herself and then giving to the apostles claiming she gave all and she dies and in both cases church what is happening is the attempt to leave the community of God with an impression about their spirituality that's not actually true what God cares about when we live together if that's true if what I'm saying is true today God cares about how we live together what do you think God hates most people who try to present themselves as something they are not inside of a community. God knows what they sold the land for. God knows how much money they made. This is not an offense to God, folks. This is an offense to the people of God. There is nothing worse than people who pretend to be holier than they are in terms of what happens in a community. Because hear me, imagine what happens in a community where everyone feels the pressure to present themselves as having a better relationship with God than they do. That's not community anymore. That's church attendance. That's religion. And one of the reasons Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead is because God doesn't want people living with that kind of pretension. He can't tolerate that. Why? Because what happens to me when you present yourself as better than you are? I can't be myself anymore. When you present yourself better than you are, I can't be myself anymore. So either I have to hide or I have to falsely present myself. So at the heart of living in community is the refusal to do this. The refusal to live in pretension. The refusal to act like we got it all together. And I got to admit to you, I have done this, y'all, most of my Christian life. And I've not dropped dead yet. I have let lies remain in a community that I'm a part of. Lies that are not completely true about who I am as a person. And I let them keep going because I liked what they thought about me as a person. And don't act like I'm the only one that's done this. You have too. What does social media do? We, we try to present ourselves in ways where we want people to misread us. Because we don't trust that if they could see us for who we are, they would actually love us. We don't believe that in our marriages. We don't believe that in our friendships. We certainly don't believe that in our churches because here's the wisdom. Are you ready? The moment I can be myself with you, the moment I do not fear your judgment, I no longer fear his. Wow. The moment I'm willing to say, this is who I am and let you see that, I can let him see that. Because I'm in perfect love is driving out fear. If I can't be vulnerable with you, I can't be vulnerable with him. If I can't let you see me without my armor and see that I have leprosy, I'll never let him heal me of my leprosy. And I want to leave you with this, church. Whenever they fear, and whenever they fall dead, the Bible says in the text that fear came upon, great fear came upon the people of God. Now, obviously, they had a good reason to be afraid man and a woman died and yet the text says perfect love dries out fear so what I'm left with is this haunting question what if Peter and the other apostles had responded differently to the deaths than the way they did what if Peter and the rest of the apostles had responded like Abraham did when he saw Sodom and Gomorrah and pleaded for mercy to be given what if Peter and the apostles would have pleaded with God like Moses did when God said to Moses I'm going to kill the nation of Israel and start over again and Moses said don't 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 do that to me God take me before you take them because listen to me church the real test of our spirituality is what happens <laughs> what happens when people you no deserve the judgment of God are judged what happens in your heart when you know they are guilty and they finally receive what they are coming what, what's coming for them there's an old French playwright about the last judgment and the way the judgment works is 
each one of us as Christians is called to stand off to the side in this hidden room and we observe our enemies being judged. And the judgment is this. When you see your enemy being forgiven, when you don't want that, what happens in your heart, that's the judgment of you. Because if you see God having mercy on those who do not deserve mercy and you rejoice in it, you have the heart of Christ. <laughs> Paul on the road ahead, what does he say in Romans 9.3? This is literally the verse that sums up his ministry. I wish that I myself would be in hell for the sake of my own people, those of my own race. You want the heart of Christ? You want the heart of Paul? You want to walk the road ahead? What do you do in your heart when the people you know deserve judgment get mercy? What happens in your heart? That's the judgment of you. And this is the heart of community. How do I live with those that just get under my skin? Not how do I live with those who I love and respect. But what happens when those destructive people are cut off? What do I Come on, team. Church, if I see you and your stubbornness and sin and resisting God and my heart breaks for you, guess what? There's hope for me. If you as a community see me and my stubbornness and sin, or you see me, the pastor, getting out of step with rhythm of the Spirit and resenting God, and your heart breaks for me, there's hope for you. But the moment I take joy in anyone else being cut off, I've lost touch with Jesus. So I wrote out my prayer for Dwelling Place Church. This is what I wrote out this week. My prayer is that you would love one another so deeply that nothing will animate your life for the next few decades like caring for one another. That you show up at Dwelling Place Church faithfully not because you love Pastor Craig or not because you love Pastor Chad, but because of those who need you to be here. That you show up because others who get in your crawl and you can't stand it, you have enough wisdom to realize that's the call of God and that you would stay in that community until that resentment turns into compassion. And if you do that, God's love will be perfected in you and without realizing it, you will wake up one day and realize I have no fear. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.